Amen. Please turn your Bibles to 1 John. 1 John chapter 3. We're looking at verses 4 through 10 this morning. It's a, a great joy to be back. I have uh, missed you all very, very much. And so uh, it's such a, such a joy to be able to be here worshiping with you again this morning. Uh, this morning also I have a, a friend from One Hope for Africa uh, staying with us. And, and maybe some of you got a chance to hear him uh, present his ministry in uh, Kent's class. And his name is Andre DeVitt. And I came down this morning wearing this t-shirt and jeans. He says, I'm, I'm so excited uh, to get to be here on your last Sunday. Uh, thinking I'd get fired maybe for my, my attire. But um, I got through first service and no one said anything. But we are uh, this week uh, kind of in this week and the next couple weeks uh, really trying to highlight our, our care group ministry. And if there was one ministry I would encourage you to get involved in, at Bethany Community Church, it would be our care group ministry. It is so vitally important for you to be involved in community in a, a smaller group. Uh, so we would really encourage you to, to think through how God would have you be involved in that ministry over the coming year. And hopefully, as you got involved in that one ministry, you'd get involved and excited about other ministries as well as God would lead you. So we're here in First John uh, chapter 3, looking at verses 4 through 10. And if you're able to this morning, if you would stand with me as we read God's Word together. 1 John chapter 3, verses 4 through 10. Remember 1 John, it's been a couple weeks. 1 John is about fellowship, about knowing that we're in relationship with God, in relationship with one another. And here, John is going to say some things about the nature of our relationship with God when it comes to sin and how what the practice of sinning means that we know about our relationship with God. So here we are, 1 John chapter 3, verses 4 through 10. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil." For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. You may be seated. May God encourage us through his word this morning. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time to be able to together corporately to worship you. We thank you for how we've been led to worship you through, through songs, through hymns, spiritual songs. Pray that as we sing those to one another, we'd be edified, encouraged. We thank you for the time of worshiping you through prayer and we thank you for your word and worship it as worship you as we study it together. Father, I pray for our church this morning. It's been hard to be to be gone, and so it's, it's excited to, exciting to be back. And it's hard to even hear about things that have been taking place in, in the lives of people you love while I, I was gone. We think of um, 
brother and sister who've, who've lost siblings the last few days and week, and we, we think of those who are, are struggling with illnesses, and, and Lord, our hearts just ache for those who we love so much, and so we, we ask for your special grace on them, and we rejoice at the same time with things that are, that are taking place in our life, in the life of the brothers and sisters here. We are excited for new births, for for uh, exciting news, for job opportunities, and, and so we're excited for those things. We're sad and we're struggling this morning as well, but all of these things we recognize are from your sovereign, gracious hand, and so we trust in you, we love you, and we pray for your special blessing upon us to, to follow you. I pray for this, this, this message this morning that, that deals with some very hard truths. Uh, Lord, uh, we are una- we are inadequate for these things. So, so fill us. Uh, complete what's lacking in me and in us in terms of understanding, in terms of teaching. Give us, give us again, we ask your grace. In your son Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> Shortly after our son Austin was born, Whitney and I purchased our first minivan. Toyota Sienna and scoured the internet trying to find the, the best deals and the best prices. And finally, on, on eBay, I, I saw this Toyota Sienna that was being sold at a dealership in Springfield, Missouri. And so we called them up, and the next day we drove down to Springfield, Missouri to, to look at and, and, and purchase this, this uh, minivan. Well, we got there, and, and, and things were, were good. I mean, it was, it was a good minivan, looked like it was in good condition, but but still, I was a little bit nervous, and, and so the, the salesperson presented an option to me that I had been told not to take under any circumstance, don't purchase, everyone says, don't purchase the extended warranty. Okay, I did, but I want to justify myself before you start judging me, okay? A couple things. Uh, first of all, the, it was a really good price, okay, a really good price, and so I thought, well, um, even with paying this extra money, this van is still a really good deal. It's still way more uh, affordable than any of the other minivans I've seen for this mileage and this year and stuff like that. The second thing was the salesperson described this warranty to me in, in very attractive terms. And as he described this warranty, it was an amazing warranty. Now, the warranty, is, as he described it, was slightly different than what it said on the contract. Okay, so the contract said one thing, but the salesperson described the warranty in a different way. And the, 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 the contract looked like the warranty ended at 100,000 miles on the odometer on the, on the van. And he said, no, 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 it's 100,000 miles from what it's at right now on the odometer plus 100,000 uh, 100, miles. So it'll be like 150, 160,000 miles or something like that. That sounded pretty good to me. Now, you all know what happened, right? buy the minivan, buy the extended warranty, and several years later, when the odometer read one zero 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 point one, the door broke. I took the van in, and I called the people in the warranty, they said, sorry, that warranty only went to 100,000 miles on the vehicle. Now, it didn't matter how passionately I pleaded my case. 
it, it didn't matter how strongly I had believed what, what the salesperson had told me about this warranty. All of those things were completely irrelevant. All that mattered is what? What the, the contract actually said what the warranty, the terms of the warranty actually were. None of my, my conceptions or, or beliefs or, or fervent, passionate desires to believe something about the warranty mattered. It was what it was. I've looked back on that incident and I've wondered, what was wrong with me? What caused me to believe this person instead of what the contract actually said. And I think what it was, was was kind of wishful thinking. It's what I wanted to be true, and so it's, it's what I believed to be true. And, and uh, I don't know. That, that's the only explanation I have. Stop judging, okay? That's, that's the main point of the sermon. Stop judging me for my uh, wishful thinking. When it comes to the Christian life, there's a misunderstanding we have about the nature of our relationship with God sometimes. There's some faulty thinking we have that causes us to misunderstand the nature of our relationship with God, and I think, I think part of it's based on wishful thinking. Instead of looking at what God has actually said in his word about how we can have a relationship with him, and instead of actually looking at what God's word says about how we're to relate to him and how we're going to come into a covenantal relationship with him and all, all that, instead of actually looking at that, we kind of have some, some catchphrases we've, we've, we've given ourselves or some, some conceptions we've had about God that define the relationship we have with God instead of looking at what his word says. In fact, there's a phrase that I've heard Christians use often. It's a phrase I've used before. It's a phrase many of you have probably used before. And the phrase itself is a true phrase. Like what the phrase actually literally says is true. The problem is in how we often interpret that phrase and what we think that phrase means. The phrase is uh, once saved always saved. Once saved, always saved. And, and it's absolutely true, of course, that a person who places their faith in Jesus Christ alone for their salvation is saved. They, they place their trust in Jesus and, and they're saved. And, and once they've been saved and drawn into relationship with God, they're, they're secure. The problem is many people, many people, take that phrase, once saved, always saved, and, and think it means something other than what Scripture describes about a relationship with God. Some people say, once saved, always saved. Well, that means that I can pray a prayer, I can kneel down and, and pray a prayer, or pray the sinner's prayer, or pray some prayer, and, and I've, I've trapped God. I've got him in this contract, and he, he can't get out of it. The, the terms of the deal, God, are I say these words, and once saved, always saved. There's nothing you can do about it. You've got to save me now. Or I can be in a revival, and I can, can walk down an aisle, or I can stand up and, and raise my hand that I want to be saved. And, and because you don't work for your salvation, you just, you just uh, pray a prayer or whatever, then, then, I, then I'm good to go. God has to save me. Once saved, always saved. That's not a biblical understanding of once saved, always saved. And in fact, 
It's so unbiblical. I think the phrase once saved, always saved is, is too short sometimes to really be all that helpful in describing what it means to be in relationship with God. We're coming to a passage here in 1 John that's one of those passages that stops me in my tracks. I'm not just saying pastorally, I'm saying personally. This is one of those passages that stops me in my tracks and makes me say, wow. You see, what John is teaching us here is that sin is a serious deal. There are idols in my heart. Idolatrous desires in my heart. Sinful desires in my heart. That if given free reign would say something very eternally disastrous about the state of my relationship with God. And a passage like this reminds me that I've not entered into a contract with God. I've entered into a covenantal relationship with God. And God's, God's authority over my life, his, his design for me, his, his authority over me is, is absolute and, and total and, and complete. And what it means to enter in a covenantal relationship with God is, is it means that, that God in his sovereignty has, 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 has called me. He's brought me into this relationship and, and he's allowed me to, to place my trust and faith in, in him and in and, and, and son Jesus Christ alone. And I've been transformed by God to be a part of this covenantal relationship. And now God sustains me in that relationship. He continues to keep me in that relationship. And if it's true that I am in covenantal relationship with God, there are going to be certain things about my life that are true. And if those things are not true of my life, if my life is, is characterized by, by sin, uh, habitual, committed rebellion against God, that gives me reason to know I am not in relationship with him. In other words, when I see sin in my life, I can't look at that sin and say, ha, eternal security. Once saved, always saved. I'm good to go. No, the presence of sin in my life should be a grave concern to me, and I should deal with it as God has told me to deal with it, as God tells all who are in a covenantal relationship with him to deal with it. And if I don't do so, if I have no concern about the presence of sin in my life, there's a problem. In fact, here's what I'd encourage you to think about as we look at this passage. Here's what I think John is telling us. There is a reasonable and a terrifying conclusion we can draw about the eternal destiny of a person who is committed to rebellion against God. Let me say that again. There's a reasonable and terrifying conclusion we can draw about our eternal destiny if we are in committed rebellion against God. Our relationship with sin tells us much about our relationship with God. 
there's some hard truths in this passage. And so I, I hope that, that God really keeps our hearts soft as, as we look at these truths together. I, I look at this passage and I, I see a, a guy who's in his late 80s, early 90s, the Apostle John, writing these things to us and saying, you know what? I love these guys, and I'm just going to tell them like it is. Tell it to them like it is. Some hard truths, but some loving truths from a God who wants you to know how you can be confident of your relationship with him. So here's how I want us to, to tackle this, this passage together. I, I want us to, to ask two questions that, that I think John is addressing. John is giving us the answer to these two questions, and, and these, that's kind of how I want us to, to unpack what he's, he's doing here. He's not writing in a real sequential order here, not, not necessarily a logical progression in every verse. He's kind of dealing with a lot of themes at once, and kind of he'll deal with a theme, say something else, and come back to a theme. So, so what I want us to do is I want us to explore these verses by looking at, at two major questions. Here's the first one, the first question. How can we say the person who is committed to persistent sin is not a believer. How can we say this morning that a person who is committed to persistent sin is not a believer? What gives us the, the, the right to say that? What's, what's John's logical reasoning behind making the statement that a person who's committed to persistent sin is not in relationship with God? We're going to see three things, three reasons. Here's the first one in verse 4. The first reason that I can say that a person who is committed to persistent sin is not a believer, the first reason is because of what sin is. Because of what sin is. Look at verse 4 with me. Look down at your Bibles if you have them there. Verse 4, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. What's going on there? Imagine with me, if you would, two circles, okay? In this first circle is, is, is everyone who practices sin. John says, okay, everyone who practices sin, and that, that phrase practices sin, it, it's in the present tense. It describes a person who's, who's uh, continually and, and currently involved in sin, and he says practicing sin, so it's, it's, it's doing sin. It describes a person who's, who's habitually uh, committed to a practice of, of sin or sins, okay? So that's, that's the first circle. And the second circle is uh, people who practice lawlessness, okay? So first circle are people who are practicing sin, and the second circle are people who are practicing lawlessness. And lawlessness means like rebellion against God. It's this, this committed rebellion, open rebellion, antagonism to God. That's how Scripture often describes lawlessness. It's, it's, it's the Verse 8 is parallel with the works of the devil. And, you know, the devil deceives, destroys, works to exalt man instead of exalting God. It's this open rebellion against God. So first circle is sin, people who are practicing sin. Second circle is lawlessness, people who are in open rebellion against God. Now, here's, here's the deal. What, what is John saying? What is John saying in, here in verse 4? This is powerful. Everyone, in the Greek, everyone means everyone. Everyone who's in this first circle is what? They're also in the second circle. Everyone who practices sin practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. 
there are many of us who, who might be tempted to say something like this. Well, uh, yeah, I sin, but I'm certainly not someone who's committed to rebellion against God. Yeah, I have this, this issue that I know it's not what God would want me to do, but, but man, I, I, can't, I can't imagine a life in which I'm not doing this thing. I have no desire to turn from this thing. There's, there's bitterness in my heart, and I have absolutely no desire and no intention of turning from this bitterness. Or there's this, this sexual sin in my life, and I have no desire, no willingness to turn from this thing. There's a, a uh, hateful relationship I have with someone else, and I have no desire to ever forgive that person not even on the radar screen, not going to happen. But hey, I am not in open rebellion against God. And John says, whoa, whoa, whoa. Here's the deal. You need to understand what sin is. Sin is lawlessness. Sin is rebellion. And the re- one of the reasons that we can say that a person who's committed to persistent sin is not a believer is because sin is lawlessness, and a person who is committed to sin is committed to rebellion against God. It's a big deal. You can say that a person who is committed to their sin is, is committed to living a life in rebellion to God. We can also say, that the, so that's the first thing, I can say that a person who's, who's committed to sin is, is not a believer because, because of what sin is. I can also say it because of, of who Christ is. Now look at verse 5 with me here now. And in, in verse 5, it tells us a lot about the person of Jesus in, in just a few words. In fact, there's kind of three things that I see here about Jesus. I, I see something about his person, I see something about his purpose, and I see something about his purity. His person, his purpose, and his purity are all contained here in just a few words in verse 5. First of all, look at what it says about his person. John says, you know that he appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. Now, why does he say appeared there? Why does it say, you know, he was born and came to, to live this perfect life, to take away sins? No, he says, he uses the word appeared, and here's what John is saying. He's attacking these people who would see that Jesus was uh, or, or these, these false teachers who are trying to divide between the flesh, you know, Jesus in the flesh and the idea of Jesus' deity. These people would argue that, that Jesus Christ was not either fully God or not fully man. And John is using the word appeared here to describe as Jesus came in the flesh, it wasn't like his existence began at that point. He's eternal God. His person is, is God himself. And as he came and took on flesh, he was still God, fully God. who is Jesus, his person, is eternal God. He appeared. He, he wasn't created in a moment. He, he's existed from eternity past. But what about his purpose? What does this verse tell us about his purpose? His purpose, John tells us, was to take away sin. So eternal God came in the flesh to, to deal with sin. What else have we seen in 1 John about Jesus and sin? Well, remember in 1 John chapter 1. He wrote, as, as, he, as John is talking about our relationship with sin, he says, uh, as Jesus is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. You come to chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation, the complete and total thorough satisfaction for our sins, and not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So uh, how do we say that a person 
who is committed to persistent sin is not a believer. Well, part of it is because of who Jesus is. Who is Jesus? He is eternal God. What was his purpose? His purpose was to completely and thoroughly and absolutely deal with sin. What about his purity? What does John tell us about his purity? In him, he says, there is no sin. Literally, John writes, and sin in him is not. And presently, and right now, there's absolutely no sin. In the past, there was no sin. In the future, there will be no sin. Everything about Jesus Christ, in terms of his purity, is absolutely, completely righteous. You can't look at, at some facet of, of Jesus' character and say, well, maybe there's a little bit of, maybe not sin, but something's a little off there. No, in him, there is absolutely, completely no taint of sin. He is absolute perfection. When it comes to his person, he is eternal God. When it comes to his purpose, his purpose was to deal with sin completely. His purity is absolutely, totally, 100% pure. How can you be committed to sin and say you're in a relationship with that kind of God? You can't. (laughs) At the mall... There's this store that my kids loved when they were, were younger. It's called uh, Build-A-Bear. Have you ever been to Build-A-Bear? Oh, yeah. Um, I have on many occasions. It's a very stressful place. You, know, you go in there, and there's a, a myriad of options about what kind of bear you're going to get. Are you going to get like a teddy bear, a bear bear, or a monkey bear, or a giraffe bear, or an elephant bear? And uh, then you decide... Um, like how much stuffing you're going to put in it. Are you going to make a hard bear or like a little fluffy bear? I like the fluffy soft bears. But um, what kind of eyes are you going to put on? What kind of clothing? And then you get to name the thing. I mean, it is, it's, it's an experience, right? Sometimes we, we have like this build-a-Jesus. And we come to the scripture, and like, man, there's a lot of things about Jesus in here. Oh, I like that. I like the fluffy Jesus. I like that. Uh, oh, I, oh, I love this part. And, and, and we kind of, fashion this Jesus for ourselves. Now, here's, what, here's my point. Sometimes I think we're hesitant to say that a person who's committed to sin might or is still a believer because we don't know who Jesus is. I was reading this last week, the story of how that, that phrase, you've seen those t-shirts and that phrase, uh, Jesus is my homeboy, uh, how, that, how that came to be about, who coined that phrase, or at least who's making the money off the t-shirts or something. Um, there was this guy who was in L.A., and he was in a rough part of town, and some people kind of jumped him, and, and one guy put a gun to his head, and, and someone said, some like, homeboy, kill him. And, and the guy who had the gun to his head said, well, hey, hey, Jesus is my homeboy. And the guy with the gun said, Jesus is my homeboy, and pulled the gun away. Maybe the guy was superstitious or something. And then he, you know, the guy who had the gun to his head started the T-shirts or something. All right, now I'm going to go on a limb here, okay? But a person who's attacking people and putting a gun to their head may have a superstition of the name Jesus, but I'm going to say they're not in a great place in their relationship with God. I think that's fair, right? But all of us are, are so many people are willing to say, hey, you know what? I, I'm in a relationship with God, I'm in a relationship with Jesus. Jesus is my homeboy, He's my friend, He's my buddy. Do you know who Jesus is? 
Do you have a concept of, of his person, of his purpose, of his purity? John says to simply walk around saying, I'm in relationship with Jesus, and not understand how, how contrary to everything about Jesus sin is, that there's complete incompatibility with that. You can't walk around saying, I, I'm going to be in persistent sin, and Jesus and I are okay. How can I say that a person who is committed to persistent sin is not a believer, first of all, because of what sin is, secondly, because of who Jesus is, thirdly, because of what a relationship with Jesus means? I'm going to read verse 6 here. And let me just warn you, verse 6 is one of the most difficult verses in all of Scripture to, to personally deal with. Verse 6, and then the way John repeats the idea in verse 6, in verses 7 through 10. It's, it's, it's heavy. You ready? Okay. Here's, here's what John says in verse 6. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. And what does that mean? Several explanations of the strong statement here have, have been offered throughout people's interaction with this verse. Some have said, well, well maybe, maybe he's talking about sinless perfectionism, how, how some people can reach a state of sinlessness. But, but um, you know how we talked about everyone and, and how everyone in the original language means everyone? Well, in, in the Greek, no one means no one. You know? And so when it says no one, that, that, that's, very, that's a very exclusive phrase there. No one who keeps on sinning has, 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 has seen him or known him. So you can't have some people who are part of this category who keep on sinning and yet can also say they've known him. There's they're completely out of this, this, this other circle. Some have said, well, maybe it's talking about like idealistically, but no, this is a, this is a real warning. Some have said, well, maybe it means you can lose your salvation. No, that's, that's, that's not what John has taught us throughout this epistle. He's, he's trying to give us assurance of a relationship with God. Some have said, well, maybe there's like categories of sin. No one who keeps on sinning, and that means like certain types of mortal sins, like they murder someone or they, um, you know, do something really bad. That's the sin he's talking about. And that's, remember what, what John has said about sin as we've gone through this, this epistle? He's talked about how, how, how sin permeates and, and, and how all sin affects our, our fellowship and relationship with God. So, so that's not what John is saying either. What is John saying? I, I think there's, there's something important about what we've already talked about. Notice he says, uh, who keeps on sinning. And throughout this phrase, he's talking about sinning using a, a present tense, which, which means this, this continuous act of sinning. And, and he's using the, these phrases like doing and, and practicing in conjunction with this, the sin. And so he's describing the state of a person who in the present is, is committed to, to sin, who has said, 
this sin, this aspect is, is dominating my life, and I, and I have no desire to turn or to change from this. Some people use the phrase habitual sin. That, that's, that's what John is describing here. And John says, and these are strong, strong words, no one who keeps on sinning, or let me say the positive way first, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. If you have a relationship with, with this, this perfect God and the person who, who, Jesus Christ, who existed in eternity past, the person whose purpose was to deal with sin, the person who is, is completely perfect, if you have a relationship with him, if you abide with him, you're not going to keep on sinning. Your life is not going to be marked by a commitment to habitual persistent sin. And furthermore, anyone who is committed to this consistent habitual sin that person certainly has not come to know the Jesus, John says, that I'm describing. What's the point? What, what good does this do us? Here, here's the point for you and for me, I think. What it means for you and for me is that you and I need to be in a state of continual repentance. Our lives need to be marked by a persistent commitment to repent of sin. As we come into contact with sin in our life, we say, okay, I, I understand the draw this sin has for me, and, I, and I, I struggle with it, and sometimes I struggle with it repeatedly, but God, this is not what I desire. This is not what you have created me to be. I want to be forgiven of this, and I want to turn from this. See, the unbeliever's life is marked by commitment to that sin. The believer's, I'm sorry, the unbeliever's life is marked by a, a commitment to perpetual sin. The believer's marked life is marked by perpetual desire to turn from sin. If that makes sense. If I got all that out right. <laughs> Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7. Hard words. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Did we not practice this, this, this religion? Didn't we do mighty things in your name? And then Jesus says the words that every single one of us should fear hearing. Jesus says that he will say to some, I never knew you. Depart from me, what? Workers of lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. The person who is committed to a lifestyle of habitual sin, of practicing sin, who will not turn from it, is in rebellion to God, and Jesus someday will say to that person, I don't know you. Jesus, as he preaches the kingdom of God, would say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He would say in Luke 13, unless you repent, you all will likewise perish. He would tell the parable of the, the tax collector in Luke 18, the, the tax collector who, who beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And, and he would tell us that parable that that tax collector walked away justified. Not because of his perfection, but because of God's forgiveness, a righteousness foreign to himself. Okay, 
So how can we say that a person who's committed to persistent sin is not a believer? Well, because of what sin is, because of who Jesus is, and because of what it means to be in a relationship with Jesus. Those are hard truths. Now, here's the second question, and I am uncomfortable with how I have worded this second question, but it's the words that John uses, okay? And, and, and John, again, he's this guy, 90 years old, and he's just telling us to it like it is, and we need to hear it. Here's the second question. How can we tell the difference between a child of God and a child of the devil? I'm telling you, that phrase, child of the devil, is not a phrase I'm comfortable using. <laughs> but it's what John uses. You say, well, Daniel, man, this, okay, your first question kind of sounded judgmental. This sounds like super judgmental. This is, this is beyond the pale. How can you even use that phrase? Okay, so here's what we're going to do. I'm just going to read these verses. We're, these are covering a lot of things we've covered before. I'm going to read these verses, make a couple points from them. But as I read these verses, I want you to see, this is why John is writing these things. He's writing these things to us for the very purpose of being able to determine who is and who is not a, a child of God, who is and who is not a child of the devil. That's why he's writing this. Listen to what he says. Little children, and again, man, you got to love this guy. He's, he's about to say some really hard things, but he loves them. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. There's two truths that, that come through this, this passage crystal clear that help us answer this question, how can I tell the difference between a child of God and a child of the devil? The person who practices righteousness is of Christ. Number two, the person who practices sin is of the devil. That's John's point. Now he says in verse 7, let no one deceive you. And, and, and here's, here's the bad news to this, guys. There are going to be people who identify themselves as part of Christendom. Who say, you know, I'm, I'm part of, of, of even e Protestant evangelical Christianity. And, and here's, I'm warning you along with John. These people are going to tell you. You can practice a sinful lifestyle and still be a child of God. There are going to be people in your life who identify themselves as Christian leaders who tell you it is okay for you to pursue materialism and still love God. It is okay to pursue the American dream as defined the pursuit of, of wealth. You can, you can cling to that and pursue that other Christians will tell you, and have a right relationship with God. Other people who identify themselves as, as part of the Christian community. There are going to be people who identify themselves as part of the Christian community who say to you, it is okay for you to pursue a sinful sexual lifestyle and still be in a relationship with God. There are going to be people who say to you, it is okay to forsake the vows that you have made to your wife to be covenantly faithful to her 
and you can still be in relationship with God. There are going to be people who try to deceive you. Do not be deceived, little children. I have sat down in my office with people, tears streaming from my face, pleading with them to be obedient to God, and they have told me, look, other Christians have told me that what I have purposed in my heart to do is okay. These children have been deceived. Do not be deceived, John tells us. This isn't super complicated. The one who practices righteousness is righteous. The one who, who, who does not practice righteousness but practices unrighteousness is of the devil. Don't be deceived, he says. We come to verse 8, and, 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 he, and he continues this, this idea. He says, look, there, there are works that identify some with the devil. The devil's been sinning from the beginning, and, and he talks about, you reading about Scripture about some of these works. The, 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 what are the works of the devil? The works of the devil are to exalt man, to, to deceive and to destroy. And a person who's, who's focused on exalting man or, or deceiving believers or destroying unknowingly or knowingly the things of God, that person is of the devil. John's words. Christ came to destroy these works, and a person who's working to, to do these things cannot be in relationship with God. Now, here's, here's one more thing I want you to see here in verse 9. Look at verse 9. I, I told you before that this phrase, once saved, always saved, is sometimes a very unhelpful phrase because it conveys something about our security with God that, is, that some people can interpret unbiblically. Verse 9 contains a biblical understanding of the idea of, of being secure in Christ. There's, there's a phrase that theologians use called uh, the perseverance of the saints that describes how God brings us into relationship with him and then God sustains us in this relationship. And if you want, to, if you want a verse to cling to to help you understand eternal security, I would like to recommend to you uh, 1 John chapter 3, verse 9. Here's what John says, here's your basis, here, here's the basis of your hope, not some contract that God got trapped into, but a covenant relationship. He says, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. In other words, God brings you into covenant relationship with him. And as you are coming to covenant relationship with him by placing your faith in Jesus Christ, as God gives you the ability to do so, you come into this covenant relationship and your, your life is transformed. You are what John calls born again. And that, that takes place in the past, but John uses that tense to describe something that took place in the past, but has present results. And then he says, and in the present, God's seed abides in him. Right now, if you are a believer, you have been reborn, and God's seed abides in you. The indwelling work of the Holy Spirit continues to be in you. Your security right now, as you think about your relationship with God, should not be this. It shouldn't be, you know what? When I was five, mom, Mama told me I prayed a prayer. When I was 13, I, I walked down some aisle. I've got a, I've got a, certificate in a folder that says, I became a Christian on this date. That should not be the basis of, by which you say, once saved, always saved. 
John uses the present tense here. He says, right now, at this moment, God's seed abides in you, and, and God is continuing to work in this covenantal relationship, and, and no one who is of God makes a practice of sinning. The idea of sinning is not something that continues to have a, a draw on the believer in the sense of this is what I ultimately desire to do. A person who is a genuine believer as he or she struggles with sin, and John has told us, absolutely, we are going to struggle with sin. That person is going to be a very miserable person when they are in sin. And the idea of persisting in that sin and being committed to it is an idea that fills them, fills them with dread. Verse 10. By this it's evident and, and John wants it to be evident. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. The practical application of all this is that God has given us the ability to discern our basis of telling a person you are or not a believer is, is not just, hey, I've made some criteria up and I'm looking at your life and I'm judging you and uh, believer, not believer, believer, not believer, not believer, not believer, not believer, 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 believer. That, that's not what John is talking about. John is saying God has determined who is in and who is out of relationship with him. And here are the characteristics of a person who's in relationship with him. And, and as the church, we have the responsibility to know what those characteristics are and call people to believe those, those truths about who's in fellowship with God and who's not. We cannot see into the hearts of our brothers and sisters in Christ, but righteousness, righteousness becomes evident. And our goal is just to, to come alongside a brother or sister in, who's, who's in sin and say, hey, look, I don't know everything that's going on in your heart. Maybe you're miserable about the sin you find yourself in, but, but here's what God's word says about commitment to sin, and, and here's what it says about a, a person who's committed to sin, and, and there may be a very real possibility if you're committed to this, this sin, you're not in relationship with him. Or you may be a person who looks completely righteous on the outside, and yet you know that right now in your heart there are things that you say, you know what, I love these things and I'm not willing to turn. A person who can, can look righteous externally and yet not be in relationship with God. Here's the, here's the good news. God offers his forgiveness freely. And as our lifestyle comes to the cross, <laughs> we put all those things aside and say, my, my trust is in Jesus Christ alone for my salvation. God's forgiveness is complete and it's eternal. We are once saved, always saved. But it's not because God signed this contract that he can't get out of. It's because we've entered into a covenantal relationship with him. And God in his graciousness, God in his gracious, gracious love sustains us. He calls us. He'll complete us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the good news of your son Jesus, for your faithfulness to us, your, your righteousness in our lives. And we pray that you'd give us the ability the ability to, to continue to, to follow after you. We know that you do this not on the basis of our righteousness, but on the basis, the basis of your, the righteousness of your son, Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen.